But we're with people all the time who need a Bible and then instruction in the Scriptures. We never try to make people, we don't have a denomination for them to be a part of. We don't seek to control them. We, we, we have no desire to control them. We're just there to help. And I am as encouraged and as committed to teaching the Word in Malawi as I've ever been because of what we've seen by, once again, traveling and seeing people that have never been exposed to through the Bible teaching. Uh, you could even say Bible teaching a lot. And, you know, um, great hearts and lovers of Jesus. And, and listen, in the ancient world, up until about the 1600s and really beyond that, which is only 400 and some years ago, nobody had a Bible, you know. So we understand that you can be a Christian and love Jesus without reading the Bible, okay? Does everybody know that I know that? We're not here to worship our Bibles today. But on the other side of it is, through those hist- the history of the church and the world, people who had knowledge or information or seemed to or claimed to could oppress and manipulate people who did not. And that is exactly what happened in church history, and that is exactly what happens around the world with people who have the knowledge and hold it to themselves. And so it wasn't until, you know, Gutenberg in 1490-something, or 62 or something, you know, the first printed Bible, but it was in Latin. And then Tyndale, you know, he gave his life, William Tyndale, because he printed the Bible in language later in 1500s that people could read. But then it wasn't really accessible. I mean, we're talking about a lot of time had to go by. And so, you know, we're very blessed that we have Bibles. And so um, this is, you know, I don't want to be legalistic or oppressive because I believe we live under grace. But may I say something to you? Three words, four words. I shouldn't know how many words it is. Read. It's three. I need to go back to school. Math. Read your Bible. People always ask pastors who, and other people who like are in the Word and can go to the stories. And some people are gifted and given that ministry, and that's a, a gifting. And I get that. But sometimes, how do, you, how do you know your way around the Bible? Well, it's my greatest hobby. You know what I mean? That's what I do. Okay, well, you're a pastor. Well, okay, well, you're a Christian. You don't have to be that into it. But, I mean, read your Bible. Learn it. You know, if you had a manual on how to make a million dollars and you actually believe that it worked, you'd read it every day. <laughs> so that's okay. I'm not, I'll say I'm done with that, but I know myself. I'll probably come and say it again. But will you forgive me for being so oppressive with that? Read your Bible. Uh, because I look around the world and the places I go, and I'm amazed at how gifted and blessed we are here. So, and development of society was much more connected to Bible literacy than anything else, even though it's other literacy after the Bible. So we ask if the kind of teaching we do, going through the Word, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is we always ask, do you know anybody who's doing this or that comes here to help with this or a Bible school that actually teaches you how to teach, how to read and study this way? And often the answer almost every time is no, no. Even at the Bible colleges, um, it's more like, conceptual stuff and how to build your church and, you know, just stuff. (laughs) Good stuff, but what would be the bottom line for a teacher, a Bible teacher, a pastor to know? The Bible, how how to share the scriptures. So that's on our hearts and our confidence is that this is needed and fruitful. I'll never be content to just send Bibles and say, oh, we did our job. I just won't find that, and um, I don't think you would either. So thank you for sending me.
and letting me go. And, and uh, many of you could go and teach. I'm telling you and teach pastors. And here's the thing. It's strategic. Is that uh, we have opportunities to do evangelism outreaches and all this stuff. But, you know, um, our gift is, our strength is teaching. Although my friend Scott said, you're, you know, you get fired up. You're an evangelist. You could do it, Rick. I said, well, I could do it. I, I can. I love preaching the cross and salvation. I sure I do. But uh, when you encourage one pastor, you're encouraging 100 or 200 people. It's strategic. You gather pastors and encourage them and help them focus. Now you're helping all their people. Conversely, when Satan attacks, you know, that big bullseye on a, on a leader's chest, it's like when you take down a pastor, you can often take down a church. And so um, our goal is to build up and strengthen them, not just tell them what to do. We don't say you've got to do this, but, but we give them our best shot. And then we're working with beyond the two-day conferences to start having longer times with guys who want to go deeper, and that's working. And Scott was able to stay there a little longer and continue to do a three-day conference of how to study the scriptures with uh, about 30 guys and gals, and it was an amazing. I was there for one day of that, and it was great, and they just... It's just good stuff is happening. So we said, well, let's do the cross. And, of course, we know from our studies here that the first thing I do when I'm teaching, and one of us does it, whoever I go with, is we go through John chapter 5 and Luke chapter 24, portions that talk about Jesus said in John 5 to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for them, you think you have eternal life, and they testify of me. Later in the chapter, he says, if you believed Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses talked about me. And then we go to Luke 24, where Jesus is talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and says, Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses, and we explain Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's Moses, the five books of Moses. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. When, when Jesus says, beginning at Moses, beginning at Genesis, all the way through, he began to expound to them all the things concerning himself. When he met then later in the chapter in Luke 24 at the end, he appears to his disciples, eats a piece of honeycomb, a fish, prove that he's not a ghost, he's real. Risen Jesus, listen, listen, risen Jesus, glorified body, amazing his disciples. He could do anything he wanted right now in this time that he has. And you know what he did? He gave them a detailed Bible study. He went back and said, okay, now I got you all here. Now let's go back through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And let me tell you, because see, his disciples saw him in the, in the uh, glorified flesh, <laughs> you know, in, in person. 500 people would see him eventually in his glorified, risen, resurrected body. And my friends, that was it. Other than personal visions that people would have of Jesus Nobody else was going to see what these guys saw. They were going to believe like you've learned to believe and come to believe because of the testimony of the Word of God, Jesus fulfilling the prophecies, and people who believed it, sharing it faithfully, passionately, without wavering. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah amen. You know, there, every time you say something, you say amen, and you get back. Let me try it here. Amen? amen. Oh, you guys are Malawians. You're done. You're, you got it, you know. And... Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and nothing we can do about that. But, um, but uh, so, so we taught them Jesus is the, is, is the focus, and, of course, the cross is the, is the application of Jesus in the New Testament. He has come to die, to rise, to deliver us. 
And so I start the study, and I'll start with you before I actually read. In Corinthians, Paul goes, and we've been through this, you know, a year, a little bit more ago, and uh, I'll just keep, remind you while I share with you, I'd like you to hear kind of what we shared. Because the study I already gave was part of what I'm going to do now, which was I begin in Acts 17 and just tell them about Paul goes to Athens, Greece. Um, people really like the term Mars Hill this, these days. Mars Hill was a place in Greece where all the wise people and the philosophers gathered to talk about any new thing and discuss, and Paul goes there. And if you read his preaching in Acts 17, he doesn't say the name Jesus. That doesn't mean he never said the name Jesus there. In his preaching, it's what we've been given in the Bible. This is what he said in his meeting. So just like there he is up there. He preaches, doesn't say the name Jesus, and he doesn't talk about the cross. And a few people are interested. He talks about the resurrection from the dead, the man who rose that will judge the world. He does say that, but it's very limited in what he talks about, very different from anything you see, and the result is very minimal. And the next thing he does is he goes to Corinth. And from Acts 17, you go to Acts 18. Kind of amazing, I know. <laughs> but that's, and this is how you have a commentary on the Bible, from the Bible, not from books outside of it, because they don't have books outside of it. We say to them, this is how you're able to put scriptures together as you follow the book of Acts, and the letters are, to some degree, go with the book of Acts, and you can find the places they went. This is a way for all of us to study the scriptures and understand them. So Paul goes to Corinth after this experience in Athens, and here's what he says. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, we're going to come back to that. And my speech and my preaching were not worth persuasive words of human wisdom. Do you think you could add, like I tried on Mars Hill? <laughs> <laughs> you possibly, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, Paul was a genius. If anybody could argue uh, through philosophy and through logic, Paul's the man. He was a genius of geniuses. But he comes to Corinth, he says, like a laser, I said, that's it. I'm preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. And see, we've been through this a lot here. I don't want to belabor you, but... In the earlier part of chapter, in later part of chapter one, he talks about the Jews requiring a sign and the Greeks requiring wisdom. And how many signs did the Jewish people need? Oh, well, just always one more. And how much wisdom can you build into somebody's life with the Greeks? It was the Greeks represents just the whole known world outside of Judaism. Is they want you have to meet them intellectually, or they have nothing to do with you. And we actually had a guy staying at one of our lodges in this big city, who's a Greek, a very nice guy. He came and sat and talked with us, and he's a Greek living in Malawi. And he said, as we started to share the Lord, he says, well, you know, the Greeks are the ultimate culture. And because more than likely, aliens came and landed, and that's why Greeks were so advanced to everybody else. And so there's a guy with us for a week, Rob. We said, Rob, you go ahead and talk to this guy. And <laughs> Well, we tried to talk a little bit. You could see he was like, he, he was going to dominate that, and we just kind of went, well... And, and one of our guys did actually engage him quite a bit, and um, we'll see. But uh, aliens landed, and the Greeks were ahead. And he said, I know we're having a little trouble in Greece right now, but that'll go away. 
know, like the whole economy has completely shattered and those kinds of things. But uh, it is hard to beat Greek olives and stuff like that. But anyway, I'm not anti-Greek. I'm not anti-Jewish. So, you know, we're all more alike than we are different. And that's a beautiful thing that we share when we're in Malawi is that people are people wherever you go. So it, uh, Paul's mindset is the cross because it's not the signs the Jews want because there's never enough. Jesus was doing miracles all the time as well as the Old Testament. And, and the wisdom of man does not accomplish the power of, of salvation. It's through the cross. Jesus is our hero, but he did not die as a hero. He died as a criminal. He died as the worst kind of criminal, and he paid a price. He, he suffered for us. And so I moved them into Exodus 12. And, you know, and a lot, again, around the world, you might not know this, that uh, people have, either hate the Jews because they've been taught to hate the Jews. Obviously, I don't teach them to be down on the Jewish people. But I asked them, so when God said, when I see the blood over the doorpost of your house in Exodus chapter 12, the angel of death passes over. I'm trusting you to know where I'm going here because I got too much to say. <laughs> I'm not going to do each one. And I said, uh, do you think the character of those people in the houses was perfect? You know, do you think there was any adulterers? Do you think there was any liars? Do you think there was any thieves? Do you remember anyone who, who unfairly just were evil to their children and mean-spirited to each other? And, and in some places, they actually verbally said, uh, it's not possible. These are God's people. And, it's, and I don't blame them. They had not been taught, hadn't been able to go through the Old Testament. I said, well, let me show you something. So this Mount Sinai, Exodus 32, when they're dancing around, fornicating and worshiping golden calves and wanting to go back to Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 9, for instance, when God says, I didn't choose you because you were more righteous or better. You're stiff-necked people and rebellious. And I make the point, this is because who could God choose? If he's looking for righteous people, who's he going to choose? There ain't nobody to choose. For all have sinned, none is righteous, not one. And so we're just teaching the Bible. We're not making stuff up. We're not trying to make them feel uh, unknowledgeable, but we're just leading them down the path of understanding Scripture. And they were very wonderfully responsive and blessed and pleaded with us to come back everywhere and spend, you know, weeks with them. And um, so we went through stories in the Old Testament, stories in the, the Psalms, and stories in the New Testament Gospels, the seven sayings of Christ, and, of course, in the letters where it talks about the cross. And, you know, the, the thing is, uh, one of my favorite things to do was, was when I was explaining our need for the cross, that it offends our senses. It's not meant to have your mind and your sense of self and pride be go, you know, that's, I really like that. I, I like that idea of Jesus dying on the cross for me. That's not what happens in the human mind. And it was meant to offend and hammer our human intellect and our human pride because that's what needs to be broken so that we can see God. And, you know, I said, you know, if you go to the doctor and he takes some tests on you, I gave them a way that would work for them because nobody there just goes to the doctor for tests, but I, I made it work, okay? <laughs> Keep it short. I said, and the doctor comes back to you and says, um, listen, uh, I pick a guy in the front row. He says, you know, whoever does, I said, listen, uh, I got these pills here. They are going to make your life so much better. You'll feel better. You'll feel really good. They'll help you. Uh, your mind will work a little better. You'll be healthier. Uh, they'll give you energy. They only cost, and I say the amount, 10,000 kwacha. 10,000 kwacha is about uh, $17 US. And I picked that amount, 10,000 kwacha, because there wasn't a person in any room at any time, other than maybe the, some of the leaders that we traveled with who had been from the city, there wasn't a person 
in any room of pastors at any time on everywhere we went, and I know this, that had 10,000 kwacha handy. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Is that I picked a number, about 17 U.S. bucks, that nobody would easily have. <laughs> and I said, and the doctor says, they're really good. Would you like them? They do cost 10,000 kwacha. I said, you would say, I feel fine. <laughs> I feel okay. My shoulder's better. You know, whatever it was that was bothering you. Yeah, I'm not going to go collect 10,000 kwacha to buy some pills to make me feel better. I don't have that kind of money. But if a doctor comes to you and says, I got your test results right here. I did it like this. You'll have to. I got your test results You'll be dead in three months. Now, I got some pills that will save your life. They're, they'll heal your disease. They're 10,000 quads. Do you want them or no? Is that a little different? Then these will really help your life and make you feel better. They understood my point. You know, Jesus is our hero, Amen. but he did not die as a hero. He didn't go into a burning building to save me. He took my punishment and my penalty and saved me from everlasting doom in a lake of fire. And that is the gospel. That is the message. Not a message. The message. <laughs> okay, the message of the cross. And you know I'm kind of into that. Because um, I don't want to give people false impressions about how to make their life better. I want people to be saved and education is good and important, but it's not salvation. Behavior modification is helpful, but not in itself, because if you clean up the pig or the goat, as we said, and put lipstick on them, and then on the girl goat, and perfume, and a little bow in her head, and you let her out the door, she becomes a goat all over again. And the oppressive way that in a lot of the world where the gospel is taught is that our rules are the rules. You're a Christian if you obey our rules, and if you're not, you're not. And a lot of finger wagon. It's not intentional by local pastors. It's just a teaching kind of style and presentation. And it's happened in America too. So I'm not waving my finger at you saying do this and do that. Even read your Bible. You have a great opportunity. But you know what? Believe in the grace of God. In, in Ephesians it says, By grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's salvation totally by grace through faith. But we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. It's completely a separate issue. And you don't mix those two. My, the works that I do are because I'm saved. Because I'm, because I'm saved, I have been given, I'm God's masterpiece, and I've been given work to do because I'm saved. Not to gain my salvation. When you blur those things, then it becomes whose legalism is the right legalism. So even when I tell you the message is the cross, that message isn't, you've got to do it just like me. It is not. But I am pointing everyone to Jesus that I possibly can there. And they are very responsive to the freedom and the grace that they learn. And we are very humbled that we would have the chance to be the ones to share it. And if anybody else was doing it in the places we go, I'd be thrilled and I'd just stay home and send Bibles. I would do it. But it's not happening. So God bless you for what you've done to help us do these things. So God's grace saves people and changes lives from the inside out. And, and, and Paul, now, after Acts 17 comes Acts 18. Did I mention that? 
In Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth and preaches, and the synagogue shuns him. And he goes to a house next door. There's a building next door in a Gentile house, and he starts preaching. And not until the synagogue as a whole chases him away does Crispus, the synagogue ruler, get saved. Now, you would think that that's a great, a great thing. Well, in, in Acts 18, I'll, I'll turn there. In Acts 18, um, uh, Crispus gets, uh, gets saved. And, and I would think, now this is a big moment. Paul's got to be flying high. But it's interesting. He, gets, he believes and he's baptized with his household. And in verse 9, now the Lord spoke to Paul in that night in a vision. So right after Crispus gets saved, the synagogue ruler, big doings, he speaks to Paul in a vision by night and says, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, I didn't share this part with them. I didn't get this part till the plane ride home <laughs> to think about it and talk about it today with you. But why would God tell Paul, don't be afraid? What would be the obvious reason? What? He's afraid. Okay. God doesn't say, you know how your parents will tell you things? I know, Mom. Okay. <laughs> I know, Dad. You already told me, right? That's kind of standard in any household, you know, except for you perfect Christian homes. But those guys out there. Uh, so so uh, I know. You've told me a hundred times. I already did it. God doesn't waste energy saying things that people don't need to hear. So, Paul, don't be afraid. I was with you, we read in Corinthians, in fear and trembling. Listen, from, from his first missionary journey, almost everywhere he went, he got beat. He got humiliated. Everywhere he went, it was tough. There was conflict. And then he gets to uh, a Philippi in chapter 16, and they throw him in jail. They beat him to a pulp, him and Silas. They throw him in stocks and, you know, bind their arms and feet. And they, and they put him in a, a dungeon. He gets out of there and he goes to Thessalonica and they chase him out of the town. But he doesn't get beat because he, he has to leave. They, the, the brethren take him away so he won't create a problem for the brethren there. And people get saved. The church starts there in three weeks. And people who get persecuted just like Paul did. Because that's what he says to them in the book of Thessalonians. And, and then he goes to Berea, where they're more noble, right? The Berean, the Berean calm, they're more noble than those of Thessalonica. Well, a bunch of hoodlums from Thessalonica come to Berea to chase Paul down to give him more heartache. So by the time he gets to Athens, he goes, oh, great, someplace I can just philosophize. I mean, I'm being a little bit stretching here. But he's like, maybe, maybe it's, man, I need a break. Every time I mention the cross... I get, I get hammered. Maybe I had to lighten my... I mean, I need to change my way I do my message. You know, he wasn't going to do that. His Athens experience, whatever it was, I may not understand it fully, but he comes right back to the gospel, and yet he's wondering, now that Crispus, the synagogue ruler, gets saved, what happens when, a, when that happens? Is the rest of the Jewish people or that group of people become more irate? And Paul may be wondering, am I just going to get... Is this I'm going to get just beat again and again and again. He's human. And you know, in, in the end of Galatians, in verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul, after he's pleading with the Galatians not to go back into legalism, saying, your faith is in vain, is my labor with you in vain, if you're going right back into Jewish legalism, 
from being delivered by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the cross. He says, don't do that. And and he's very emphatic in the book of Galatians. And then in verse 17 of chapter 6, he says, from now on, don't let anybody trouble me. Kind of a strange sentence. Let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're talking about the grace of God that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way you see and know the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And you guys are letting these religious um, fanatic um, uh, legalists tell you that that's not. Everywhere I go, the reason I don't get beat up for talking about God in general. Just like you don't get hassled for talking about God. Isn't, you know, I love God. I believe, do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. What do you think about God? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Well, what do you think? Well, I think he's, now uh, Jesus is God. What do you mean? Well, um, um, <laughs> you know, when you start to talk about the cross, you're telling people that things were worse than they possibly could imagine and that are desperately, hopelessly lost without him. I think we've been through this a few times. And now you're in conflict. And so it's easy to talk to people about generic things and God because, because, because there's no conflict there and there's no power there. There's no power without the cross. The power of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is encouraged by the Lord. Aren't you glad that God said, I can, you know, I see you're trembling. I see that you're kind of concerned here, Paul. Don't be afraid. Nobody's going to harm you. You just keep preaching. Hallelujah for that. And so um, he's kind of saying, don't add to the grace, man. I pay a heavy price, Paul says. Every time I preach the gospel, I pay a price for it. You know, people are not going to like me for a whole lot of reasons. Now, some of you, I know you really like me, and I'm your buddy and your friend, and you think I'm funny and cute and kind. <laughs> but there are, not everybody does, you know that. And i got to tell you something. Not everybody likes you either. <laughs> okay, they find some of your quirks, like mine. I know mine are worse, but they find some of your quirks annoying. You know, when you say, oh, I know the answer to that, they kind of think, oh, man, I'm sick of that person. They know everything. They think they do. You can't win. Not everybody's going to love you. Do you understand that? Yes. That not everybody loves you. Not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to just think you're the greatest thing since Swiss cheese. And I have, a, like, an encouragement for you. Get over it. Just get over it. But if they're not going to like you, really not like you, if people are not going to like me, let it be because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because I'm loving them. Not trying to impress them and have them think I'm really cool. I mean, I'm way past that. And some of you are right there with me. Some of you still have a chance, but it's a slim chance. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I guess I like making people feel bad. I guess I, in all honesty, I do. Okay. But anyway, you know what I mean? It's just about Jesus. And life goes a lot better when it's about him because he has power. And, the, and you'll know that because when you give yourself to him internally with those fears and those troubles and those concerns, that, and listen, we can't fix those for you. We can come and stand by him. We should. This church is a blessing to me because I watch people stand by each other and help each other. If you're not involved 
and you wonder why. I, I just don't come and get involved somehow, and I, and I know that God will send people into your life to love on you. You may have to work at it yourself a little bit or find another church where that happens, but do it because it's part of being a part of the body of Christ. But we can't fix your problems, your weaknesses, your fears. We can help as those who are equally in trouble turn your attention with you, turn our attention to Jesus who can fix us, who can heal us, who can help us, who proved his love for us. See, God demonstrated his love in that Christ died for the ungodly. That's, I qualify. I qualify. How about you? Christ died for the ungodly. If you're not ungodly, then you don't qualify for salvation because you're self-righteous and you don't need Jesus. And I can't fix that. Aren't you glad that you can humble yourself before God and just say, you know, I need his help? It's not an excuse to be lazy and unfruitful and not, you know, progressive in your life and accomplish things, but the motivation is different than proving to people around you that you're, I'm really good. I'm really okay. I want, to, I want you to know that I'm really okay. That's gonna, it's going to wear out real quick. It's going to wear you out really quick. And then you become a bitter person. I don't care what people think. Well, I get that, but you obviously don't really like people either. How about, I'm not worried about what people think. I love people because God loves me. I love them too much to worry about what they think about me. I want to love them. Amen. That's the goal. And it's interesting that Lisa put, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love has, does not know God because God is love. And so I have uh, so taking them through the word. And, uh, you know, if I'm belaboring a point, it was funny. i got to tell you, funny, I have time this time real quick. My friend Scott, he did this thing about salvation you know, workmanship for Christ, salvation. It was the last study of one day at a two-day conference, and he uh, really hammered it home, and they really were excited, and everybody was blessed. The next day, he started his study. I did the first study, and then he did the second. So he says, I'm going to review, and he does this salvation, you know, and he did it, like, with translation, like, five times. Really belabored it, kind of. I mean, he's a great teacher. But this guy sitting in the front row, I'm on the side, this guy sitting in the front row in Chicheva says something, kind of, kind of says, blah, blah, blah. And everybody just roared. And I, I looked at Edwin, Edwin, what did he say? Because Scott said, so we've, salvation's this, this is our work, so what do we do from here? And every time he went, so what do we do from here? So what do we do from here? So what do we do from here? And this guy finally says something, everybody laughs. I said, what do you say? He says, that's what we're waiting for, all right? <laughs> As my friend Ray would say, advance, advance. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Uh, I was glad the guy felt the freedom to say it. Honestly, we're just buddies there. We're just friends. And uh, so Scott said, okay, I get the point. I should move forward. <laughs> so, so uh, But uh, that's what we're waiting for. You know, I want to turn you to one more place. And then we're going to share communion. But I won't belabor this, but if you turn to Numbers to show you one of the studies we gave, this is the one I gave, Numbers 21, it's the fourth book of the Old Testament, and what we have here is Jesus, you you begin in John chapter 3, but since you're aware of that, because I'm telling you and you may know it, we won't turn there for the sake of time. In John 3, 14, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
And later he says, he will, if, he, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And I was able to explain, this isn't about lifting Jesus up in praise. This is being, Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And how I know that is he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent. You go to Numbers 21, and in the first three uh, verses, uh, God gives them strength over enemies that are fighting them. They're under discipline. In other words, they're going to wander for a full 40 years so the younger generation can enter the promised land, but God is continuing to bless them and provide for them manna, water. Their shoes and their clothes don't wear out. There's a cloud cover over their head. There's a pillar of fire at night to protect them, and God meets with them and guides them even though they failed him. He's walking them through their journey. And it says in verse 4, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they had to take a longer journey, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For as there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes or hates this worthless or contemptible bread. I'll stop there for a minute. Do you know anybody besides these people? Have any of you had manna? Has anybody here eaten? Not, not store-bought like manna bread or manna bread. Or... <laughs> That's what it means. What is it? Because nobody had ever seen it before or saw it again. It's God made it appear on the ground. It was food for them. It had energy in it. And it, they didn't, all they had to do was collect it six out of seven days a week. And they could collect twice as much on the sixth day so they didn't work on the seventh. And God made water come out of rocks that fed three million people, which means a river flowed out of rocks. And they never did. Nobody died of thirst, ever. And nobody died of hunger and starvation. And they experienced what nobody in history has ever experienced, ever, right? Has anybody here had manna? I didn't think so. And their discouragement isn't the discouragement that comes from just life can be really hard. And we all get discouraged because God is very comforting to those who face that. Read Isaiah 40. Their discouragement is because of their rebellion. Their discouragement is because they are not, they refuse to be satisfied with God's provision in what he's doing for them, what he's doing with them, and what he's giving them. We hate this worthless bread. That is a dominant statement out of the heart of sin. We hate this worthless bread. And so, uh, you know, now Jesus in John chapter 6 is, you know, there with people that he's been feeding the new manna, which is making bread for 5,000 out of five loaves of little, little loaves. And they keep wanting the bread. And he says, you follow me because you're the bread, not because of who I am. And they said, well, Moses gave us, and all of a sudden Moses is good in their sight. <laughs> These guys, Moses gave us bread from heaven. And Jesus says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh Moses did not give you that bread, but my heavenly Father gave you that. Moses didn't climb up a ladder at night and make, you know, <laughs> throw manna down. Moses wasn't cooking. My Father gives you that bread. I am the bread of life. If a man eats my flesh, drinks my blood, he has everlasting life. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. I am the true bread that came down from heaven and give my life for the world. And they said, thanks for clarifying. Now we will never have another question. 
you finally answered my questions, so now I won't be discouraged. No, they said, these are really, this guy's talking weird. Who can, this, this guy's too much. And many of their disciples turned away. You see, I'm the bread of life. What God was doing with them in Numbers 21, he was doing with them in John chapter 6. And it's not just Jewish people. It's not just the Hebrews. It's what God does with people. As he draws faith out of you and he reveals, he reveals your need for Jesus by showing you how rebellious your heart can be against Jesus. Not just by something you do wrong. We ever do, every, everybody does wrong things. But the fact that I don't come fully 100% to Jesus with everything is proof of my nature and the problem in my nature. And I'm not alone because it's mankind. And, and so it says that, then they, and then in verse uh, 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bid the people, and many of the people died. And the people came and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that he takes away the serpents. And the Lord has Moses make a brass serpent and put it on a pole, and if they look upon it, they will live, and the, and the poisoning will stop, and they'll, be, they'll survive. And it makes no sense. Humanly, physically, naturally, it makes zero sense. It means, as Moses lifted up a serpent, the metal of judgment is brass. The elements of the tabernacle of the altar were brass. God said in Deuteronomy, when you pray when you're in sin and you're not really repenting, your your heavens will be like brass. Your prayers will bounce right back to you. A brass ceiling is a sign of you're under judgment because you're not really getting it, and God's trying to deal with you. And so... Moses lifts up a serpent, and the Son of Man, Jesus, has to be lifted up on a cross. And it's, that's what's happening in Numbers. And it's really interesting that it was serpents that bit them. It all started with a serpent, you know. It wasn't him, per se, but, you know, Satan comes as a serpent. And what does he say to Eve? You should be discouraged about God, because he doesn't really care about you. If he did, he'd give you everything you really need and really want. And, you know, he's holding out on you. God is holding out on you. He knows that you'll be just like him if you eat from this tree. He knows that there's more for you than what he is offering you. And you should not trust him. Do you think that message has gone throughout the world? (laughs) And so, you know, they were bitten by the serpent. He was influencing them as Eve. And God says, okay, we'll let serpents come. And maybe you can get the picture and the point. And maybe people through history will understand that as the... As Moses lifted up a serpent, the actual element of judgment was the serpent, but the brass serpent on the stick was the element of deliverance. And Jesus, the, the verse that I love to say, and you've been here with me, you've heard it a million times, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He became the judgment on the cross, lifted up. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And I share that with you this morning because I just wanted to say Jesus is the bread of life. Can I get an amen? Amen. Some of you don't understand that right now, that life has kind of twisted on you or you're young and you haven't really experienced it in a way that you can say that's totally real to me. We're not here. I'm not here to judge you or condemn you or say you have to think this way. I'm pointing you to Jesus. He's got to do the work. But if your heart has any openness to say, could it be? that what I really need is a real deep, real relationship with Jesus. And not just, if God helps me do this and helps me do that and helps me have a better life and is kind to me the way I think he should be kind, then I'll give him a little credit and maybe start to read my Bible or (laughs) pray or, 
you know, God is just, you know, God is so gracious. He's just looking for any crack in our armor. You know, we have armor, protection against having to give ourselves away. We want control. And, and God just, he's so gracious. He just looks for a little crack where he can just get into you and touch you and let you know that he's better than everything you could possibly think of put together. And, you know, Christians should not, ought not, and cannot say we understand everything. Just like scientists cannot understand the full universe, the more they learn, it just expands their sense of awe, and they they know a bunch of stuff, but they, they just keep finding stuff they didn't know. Isn't that the way of a Christian? We're not saying the Bible tells me everything about God. I've never said that. I've never thought that. It doesn't. I, there's things I don't understand. How about you? Is there something? You're, you're probably not going to understand them in this life. But the thing that we can understand are the things that God gives us to understand. And those things will lead us to a relationship with him. So if you're here today, and communion means nothing to you, and it's worthless bread, I don't take it. Because you're taking judgment on yourself. You're, you're counting God worthless. But if you want to give worth to him, it isn't, okay, now I'm really righteous. What it says in Corinthians 11, we need to eat and drink worthily of communion. It doesn't mean i got to be good enough to take it because I just can't get there. 